For so many modern driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present to our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies and then a successful coaching and online course business. But for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. We're here to share an insider's peek into the strategies and mental resilience it takes to create and run six and seven figure online businesses. As women entrepreneurs, only 2% of us will ever earn a million dollars. We've done it ourselves and we're on a mission to help you reach financial independence by chronicling our journey and sharing our proven playbook. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow a business and build a life that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the new podcasts that drop every single Tuesday. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. Today, we have on the show one of our favorite guests, Kelly Deals. She's a repeat guest because we always get such good and insightful conversation with her. If you don't know who she is, she's a business teacher for culture makers and helps socially responsible entrepreneurs make money and justice. In today's conversation, we talk about cancel culture, about public trashing, Jenny and Kelly both share personal stories of when it happened to them, what it was like, and what to do about it. Kelly has some very interesting theories about women as a subculture and playing on the same level, and we get taken down if we try to level up a little bit. It's fascinating conversation, so worth the while. I think all three of us agreed that one of our biggest fears is that women don't put their work in the world. They don't step into visibility because of a fear of visibility, a fear of being called out, a fear of being taken down. So that is you. You're going to find this episode extremely helpful. Please welcome Kelly Deals. Well, Kelly, welcome to the Angie Spoke podcast, or shall I say, welcome back. We're so happy to have you and have this time with you today. Oh my gosh, it's always a joy to be with the two of you. We watch you, we read everything you write, and I always think about you. And in December, it was like, we haven't talked to Kelly forever. So we got you back on here. So we're super excited. For those of our listeners that don't know who you are, do you want to just give a quick little bio of what your work is about? Sure. I say that I'm a culture maker and I teach business and growing your body of work through the lens of how do we do it ethically, in integrity? How do we do it in ways that change the game? I'm not just here to play the game. I want to change the game. Mm. So how do we change our business practices to be more liberatory, to be less oppressive? That's the kind of work that I do. And can you just, I know before we hit record, you two were going off and I had to like stop because we need this recorded, but I just, I'm curious before we get into the conversation that we've planned, when people come to work with you, like your clients, what are they struggling with, suffering with? What's disconnected for them? I think there's two groups of people. 
So one group of people come to me and they have a public body of work. They have a podcast, they have a signature course, they have a really clear perspective, and they're already doing their work in the world. And they're trying to jump it up a step, either in terms of revenue or in like mainstream reach. So that's one group of people. Those people, what they're suffering with is often they are afraid of the visibility that comes up with their dreams. They're a little bit afraid of criticism and they need really practical structures for what are the steps they need to take to make more money, to have more subscribers, to get in the mainstream media. So that's one group of people. The other group of people are earlier in the group or earlier in the growth curve in their business and their public body of work. And they are trying to put that body of work together. So they've got sort of all the puzzle pieces, but they need to rearrange them and make something potent. So the work is there, but they just need to refine it, define it, pull it together, and then have very practical steps for getting more people into Mm -hmm. the work. And their fears are, am I going to make any money? Is this thing going to work? Who am I to say that I have a method instead of just training in other people's methods and teaching that? So there's a little bit of imposter stuff that goes with there, and they really have to own their work and own their point of view. And like the other group of people, they do struggle with, okay, being a person with a marginalized identity in the public eye, I'm very afraid of what's going to come with that. And here's the really interesting layer in the last several years. The last several years, all of my clients, and me included, are no longer afraid of our ideological opponents. You know, at one point I had men's rights activists, you know, hacking my site, right? Mm -hmm. That used to be the problem that I encountered. That's not the problem I encounter anymore. (laughs) The problem I encounter now is from the people who I consider my peers. Those are the people who come after me. And so, and that's more harmful and more distressing because these are the people whose respect I want. Right. And to be afraid of the people who you most want to be, you know, in relationship with, it's a mess. So that's the shift that I'm seeing in the last several years. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's much, you know, what we're experiencing. Jenny, I'm going to turn over to you. This like this whole visibility, afraid of visibility. This is exactly what we wanted to talk to Kelly about. Yeah. So I think thank you so much for being willing to talk about this and making this your work about this, Kelly, because we really need this voice out in the world and someone unafraid to bring this up because I think so many people are just terrified of even like broaching the conversation around like being a public person who has a history of, you know, operating within certain kinds of political spheres. And then all of a sudden I have found that any level of real real economic or career success basically brings down this gauntlet onto someone. And in a way it's like, it's meant to threaten them to, to kind of stand back and not you know, be so successful. I think I I don't know. I, I'm curious, is this subconscious in your mind? Is this something that mostly women, women are engaging in subconsciously with other women? Is this like, is there an organized force orchestrating this? Like, are there certain books that everyone read that cause them to act like this? Like, where is this coming from? I have a theory. I'm literally writing a book about it right now called Public Women. So I have a theory about this. So I think there's two things going on. So one, almost all of my clients are women. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at through that lens and I'm looking at through my own personal experience as a woman. So I think in mainstream culture, the norms are pro-male, right? Like, so whatever men do is okay. But if women go and do those things, we get punished for it, right? So if women show up 
shiny and assertive and successful and striving and ambitious in mainstream culture, which is designed for men, then we get punished for it. There are visibility penalties for trying to take up that kind of space in mainstream culture. So that's happening. And so we have a fear around that. And it's a legit fear, right? There's a survival-based fear there. And then this is my personal theory. In women's spaces, we have a subculture, right? So that's the main culture. That's the overculture. Then I think in women's spaces, in the world of women, we have a subculture. It's not just like subconscious. It's not just like a set of books we read. It's literally, we have a subculture. And in our subculture, we try to do the opposite of what we experience in the mainstream culture. We try to create safety. We try to make people feel comfortable. So what we do, which is different than the mainstream culture, which valorizes competition and risk in our culture, in our subculture, we valorize leveling. Like we always want to be in the same relationship horizontally Mm -hmm. in power Mm -hmm. with other Mm -hmm. people. So we get very uncomfortable with power differentials And we engage in activities like self-deprecating. We engage in activities like giving each other compliments to bond and bond over self-deprecating. Not that those are bad things, right? Those are beautiful things. But what I see happening is leveling is a cultural norm. So if someone is suddenly in a different place, meaning they are more successful, getting more attention, or deviating from other norms being different than the group, then we punish them because they've deviated from a cultural norm. So women exist in the space where we get visibility penalties in the mainstream culture for being not men and in our subculture for being out of level with the other women whom we're in relationship with. That's good. It's a double bind, basically. Mm -hmm. You can't win. So, I mean, this sort of, this makes sense to me in so many ways, not just around career success or business success, but also obviously around all of the other things that women are competitive with one another about with their appearance and, you know, the material possessions that they acquire. Like I'm fascinated by Facebook moms groups. Like I just have this endless fascination. Like I'm in several and in a neighborhood one and on multiple neighborhood ones and have been for years in different states and different places. And I think that I'm seeing what you're saying. I can see playing out in a very non-career context as well. Right. Where there's... I think it's our subculture. It's not yeah. just career. It's just yeah. our subculture. And I don't even think it has anything to do with like the stereotypes of like women are catty or mm-hmm. that's yeah. not it. We are trying to create like safety and cohesion that we don't mm-hmm. experience other places. And that's the leveling behavior. But lev- every behavior also has a shadow to it, right? Yeah. And so the shadow behavior is we check and punish and single people out when they deviate from those cultural norms, which is no different than any culture. Every culture checks and punishes people who deviate cultural norms. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, when women see, and that's just generalizing, when women see men being successful, is it just because they're men, they don't need to be singled out then? Because like, that's acceptable. Like that's That's acceptable. It's appropriate. It's normal. It's appropriate. And That's, often yeah. I think, and I'm grossly generalizing here, yeah. but I don't necessarily think that we think men are our competition in that uh-huh, way, right? Uh-huh. But in a space where we're supposed to be level and there's not supposed to be any competition, signs of competition are a problem. Mm-hmm. But in a space, a mixed space where competition is normal, then there's not quite the same penalty attached to competition if it's a man. Men are supposed to be competitive. So they're not violating a cultural norm. Uh-huh. So it's it's about gender, but it's also about who's violating cultural norms. Uh-huh. That's who gets checked. And I think there's another piece of this puzzle too, when we're talking about people getting targeted 
especially online visible women, we think sometimes that people are getting targeted because they behaved badly. But we don't actually necessarily know that that's the case. Because as soon as someone makes an accusation, it is assumed to be true. And the person who's been accused is supposed to engage in repair. But there's no process for saying, well, you know, here's the timeline. Here's what's actually happened. You know, let's take a look at that. Maybe there's mutual responsibility. Maybe it's a false accusation, right? There's no way to do that. The accusation is made. It's assumed to be true. And now the person has no way to repair in any way other than to engage in being ritually humiliated. But what I think is actually happening there, I come from a political science background and international relations, a nation state that doesn't like its position in the international community will start a conflict in order to raise their position. So they will target a more powerful nation that they think that they can do something to make a dent and engage in a power struggle with them. And they have to win. But the point isn't even the other nation state. They don't even necessarily want what the other nation state has, except that they want the status. So they start a power conflict with the other nation state because it's the audience of the international community that they're performing for. And they need to raise their status in the eyes of the international community. That's the point of that power grab. So that's actually what I think is happening in our women's spaces, in our women's entrepreneurship spaces in particular, is sometimes very talented, up-and-coming peers who are under-resourced, radically under-resourced, start a power struggle with someone who's more established in order to raise their status, and they have to win that struggle. And so these cancellations and call-outs are often actually a power, like almost like a coup of like, we need to remove power from this more established person and transfer it to this young, talented, under-resourced person. That's Mm -hmm. what I think is often happening. I'm not saying that across the board. Sometimes there's legitimate wrongs that have been committed and a call-out is happening around that. But what I see in the back end and people land in my lap like every month through the Whisper Network, talking about what's happened to them, wanting to know how to manage it, And when I hear what's happened, and then I look at like all the communications around what's happened, it's often like personal beef or an interpersonal thing that's Mm -hmm. gone awry rather than there's been a real wrong committed. And the person who's the up and comer, who's under-resourced, is really trying to assume the position of the other person. And that Mm -hmm. is often what I see is happening. So it's literally a coup. It's a power transfer. And Mm -hmm. I don't even like the language of call-outs. What I think is actually happening is we initiate trashing campaigns. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so that all makes sense to me. I can see why someone would do that. I personally would like to think I would never do that to anyone and that I would notice if I were about to try to trash someone. But what is so confusing to me and has been for the last few years is the ease with which other people, other women jump in to sort of piggyback into that process. Like, what do they get out of that? Is it just like association with the new person who might be coming into power in some way? Like, why are so many? Like, it really does feel like a mob mentality that takes form. Where's the incentive for that? Yeah, I think there's multiple incentives. So one, there's an incentive. There's literally a power and money and clout incentive, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's an incentive that if you show up with the right noise, then you will end up with more followers and people who look to be whistleblowers and speaking up in the name of truth, they look more credible. And so they get enhanced reputations. People mm-hmm. literally get book deals out of these kinds of things. They get a whole bunch of new followers and you'll see it like, thanks to all my new followers. Here's my PayPal address. Here's my Venmo or yeah. buy this course. Like we literally, or they'll launch something yeah, yeah. on the back of that. So, but what I see with 
if you read the book Status by Will Story, he talks about this. So in again, in our subcultures, you gain status and clout by performing the appropriate behavior. So if you look at a Facebook group, and he actually uses anti-vax Facebook groups as an example and other groups, but this was a particularly interesting one. So he used like mom's anti-vax groups that you can go in initially just trying to get more information. You might not actually be an anti-vaxxer, let's say as an ideological perspective, but you're trying to get more information and you become friends with people and you're in the group. There is an incentive to display the correct behaviors and display outrage. And like there's incentive and you move up the ladder in that group in terms of clout and status by displaying the appropriate behaviors. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a subcultural thing and it's a status thing. So people who join in these kinds of online trashings, there is incentive because they now get more reputational clout amongst the people who are doing this thing. But I also think some of it's subconscious. I also think there's a thing where we want to be on the right side and Mm -hmm. we're so tired and under-resourced and sick of all the shit, you know, that it looks like, well, we're doing something to correct it. And it feels like we're doing something to correct it, but we're pointing at the wrong things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, why are we pointing at individual people? Why are not pointing at the government? Why are not Mm -hmm. pointing at the systems? Why are we pointing at a woman with 3000 followers? Like this makes no sense. We're pointing at the wrong things, but it feels efficacious. We get a dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. We feel like we're doing something in alignment with our principles, but Mm -hmm. often we're doing it off of misinformation. And if we Mm -hmm. knew what was really happening, we would be shocked and appalled. And then I think it's the leveling thing, right? We're all pointing at that woman who's out of level with the rest of the community, has too much power, has too much resources, too much attention, too much, too much, too much, right? And we're going to level her. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's multiple things going on there, like multiple things. Do you think that this is just us being animals and human beings and that survival meant sticking with the group and to be ostracized would perhaps mean death, right? Do, I do, do think you... a piece of that is true, for real. There, I think that there's a book called Wanting by Luke Ger- Yeah, that's what I was going to... I love Gerges, that book. Who, yeah, right, I love that book. Yeah. Right, it's scapegoating. It literally yeah. is scapegoating. It's a cultural mechanism. And two things yeah. are happening. It's a cultural mechanism for relieving tension that we have about our morals and our cultural values not being in alignment. So we select someone, transfer all of that onto them, and then we feel better. Like we've purged ourselves emotionally. Like there's a spiritual catharsis that happens Mm. there. And again, there's power transfer because the two people who get targeted to be scapegoats are people who are absolutely powerless and cannot fight back, right? The people who have the least status in our culture and the people who have the most status, the kings and queens and you know, the people yeah. who have the most status. Those are the two people who get targeted to be scapegoats. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like a self-protective mechanism, right? Because if I'm going to totally. throw rocks at this person, I'm in that moment at least protecting my own physical safety. Well, and if you throw rocks and the community who's throwing the rocks, you're one of them, you're not going to be a target. Right. Right. Or what we also do in that moment, and I think most of us do this, is we become bystanders and say nothing so that the anger of the mob doesn't come towards us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm not talking about when someone is a criminal and has sexually violated people or committed crimes. We absolutely need to speak out about that and hold that person accountable. I'm talking about when two people more often than not have interpersonal beef and one person goes after the other and cloaks that in the language of justice. That's what I see happening the most. Yep. And even that historically has a lot of, that's what happens. If you look at any kind of 
fundamentalist regime, when there's a regime switch, the thing they use the new state power to go after people they were jealous of in their real life. Like when the Islamic Republic became a thing, the people who got targeted were often, you know, someone's boss that they were mad at or someone's sister-in-law or, or what have you. In China, under Mao, that also happened. It was a lot of interpersonal beef that the apparatus of the state got used to punish people for interpersonal stuff. So the language of justice or the new cultural norms get used in interpersonal ways. Yeah, you know, I think what's so interesting about this kind of social version of scapegoating or ostracizing that we're seeing happen is that that I have noticed, and I, I think we were talking about this before we started recording, like there's starting to be a little bit more pushback against this. So mm -hmm. it's not just everyone gets on board and then the person is effectively canceled or disappeared from public life. And then we all move on. Like I've started to see more resilience. I want to use that word on behalf of the people who are being targeted. And I just wonder what shifts do you see as explaining that? And what is the antidote in your mind? Because you've obviously dealt with this personally as well. Yeah. When this was happening to me in 2017, I wrote to Joe Freeman, who in the 70s wrote a really famous piece called On Trashing. And as a feminist was writing about like that whole communities in the 70s were just being destroyed by this kind of trashing. So they call it trashing then. Now we call it callouts or cancels. And I wrote to Joe and said, like, what do you do about this? How do I deal with this? How do we heal our community? How do we stop these behaviors? And what Joe wrote back and said is, no one person can stop it. Only a community can decide mm -hmm. together to stop it. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me. I also wrote to Gloria Steinem. And because Gloria Steinem dealt with a thing where in the 70s, Gloria Steinem was in accused of being like a CIA agent by a smaller group of feminists. And, you know, there was a whole thing. And I was like, so how did Gloria Steinem weather that? Because now she's in her 80s and she's still significant mm -hmm. and doing incredible mm -hmm. work in the world. And it didn't mm -hmm. stop her. But that had to have been enormously painful. Like, I don't know how you survive that. And she said roughly the same thing that Joe Freeman said, like only a community can decide to stop it. Like it has to be a cultural value that we decide together that we're not going to engage in this. And that's not actually happened or happening. And she said, what you need to do is have a group of people around you who will speak the truth to you. So if you are in fact out of bounds, someone in your life who you trust and respect and who wants you to win will be like, yeah, no, that's not cool. Mm -hmm. And that's got to shift. And also people, those that has to come from people you trust. And so I make some personal rules for myself, which is, you know, if you have my phone number, there is no reason for you to go on social media and say anything. You need to call me and talk to me. If I have your phone number, I don't need to go on Twitter and say a thing. I need to call you and we need to talk to you, each other and we need to sort that out, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't have my phone number, and we're not in relationship, and you're not a client of mine, or I'm not a student of, like, if we don't have a relationship, and you're just some random stranger driving by on my social media, I don't have to take that. Like, that's just the behavior of a bizarre and intrusive stranger. And I can have boundaries about that and say no to that. Mm -hmm. But no, we have to have some norms, we have to decide. And I think what we're seeing now is some brave people have been speaking up and writing things at great and enormous personal cost. And it's getting traction across mm -hmm. time. But they have gone through hell to be able to even say these things publicly and are still going through hell because they're standing up instead of just going away quietly. They're standing up and speaking on it and writing on it and creating analysis for us to learn from. And I think one of the number one things we have to do is understand that a great 
number of this stuff is subconscious and cultural. So we're sort of programmed to do it. And even human, like we're just programmed to do it. So, but as soon as we raise that to the level of consciousness, we can deviate, we can do something different. We can choose a different response. So we've got to raise this to the level of consciousness, which means we have to be talking about it. We, we yeah. have to have analysis about it. And then the number two thing we have to do about it is really cultivate our own personal analyses and liberation. Because what I'm seeing is we've woken up, right? We have started deconditioning ourselves and the people who were traditionally our authorities, we are no longer in alignment with them and we're not obeying those authorities and those cultural norms anymore. But now we're in subcultures where we're obeying influencers and people we respect. We've traded one set of authorities for another. And I say this all the time, but obeying a new set of authorities isn't liberation. So what we have to do is be able to like suss out the situation ourselves and make an informed decision, not just fall in line and automatically be triggered into making a certain kind of response. We really have to build our analysis and think independently. Mm -hmm. So even if all the people you respect are doing this thing, if you look at it and you're like, this is not on, these facts don't add up, don't play along, mm -hmm. right? Don't add yourself to that. Yeah. And I think that being brave is also contagious. So the people that you're talking about who have taken this great personal risk on and started to speak out publicly on these issues, like that's other people are finding their bravery and their courage through bearing witness to that. I mean, I've just personally in my own network seen that happen in the last like nine months. And the other thing that helps with the bravery piece is actually, again, being like what Gloria Steinem said, like be surrounded by people who actually want you to win. Yeah. Right. And like, those are the people's yeah. opinions you have to care about who want you to win, who love you, who are invested in you and who will tell you when you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. When you have that, it's a little bit easier to be brave. And then what helped me when I was going through something similar was understanding what I was trying to do, like the bigger vision. Right. When I think about culture making and culture shifting, I would do that even if I wasn't being paid as a coach, as a business coach for culture makers. I would do that. I have always been doing that. And so when I was going through it, I kept thinking like, okay, so I guess I'm not going to be popular anymore. Well, this isn't about being popular. This is about doing the work and I'm just going to carry on doing my work. And some people are going to be with me and some people are not, and I'm going to carry on, you know, and I looked for the seed of legitimate critique and I integrated that. And then I let go of all the other stuff and also went to therapy for many years, you know, and because it's personally devastating, but the bravery piece is being attached to something bigger so that you can keep going on and also being attached to something smaller, meaning people around you. So we actually have to like detach our identity from those social measures. When you say we have to be in community, you know, and surround ourselves by people who will tell us the truth. I read your blog about community versus groups. Mm -hmm. And how do people know, like other than your immediate in-person friends. No, that's actually what I'm talking about. This is just in-person. You not, need like five not... or six people who actually uh -huh. have your back. Okay, okay. Right, okay. like it, this yeah. doesn't have to be a huge group of people. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because and often what is happening is you're being cast out of those groups and that's where the wound is coming from. Right, right. And sometimes you just have to let yourself be cast out of them, right? You're not going to have a home there anymore. But if you, that's okay if you've got four people in your life who love you. It's not okay, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. okay. It's mm -hmm. not okay. But you can survive it if you've got a handful of people who love you and how I tell other people who land in my lap, who are going through this kind of thing behind the scenes, I tell them like, you can't actually be canceled unless you consent to it. Mm -hmm. 
And what I mean by that is you didn't consent Amen to any of this that. happening, right? Yeah. But you can't, unless you consent to it by saying, okay, I'm going to lie down and I'm going to take it yeah, and I'm going to stop and I'm going to disappear yep. and I'm going to be sacrificed, yep. right? You have to just be like, I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing and you all can have your little party for three weeks. I'm going to cry and I'm going to drink coffee and I'm not going to sleep and I'm going to need therapy and I'm not going to stop what I'm doing because it's more important than that. Yeah. I just kept putting my newsletters out. I kept writing my blog posts. I kept sending my social media. I kept teaching my courses, right? And I took a massive hit. I lost half my list in two weeks. My I lost a huge chunk of income, mm-hmm. right? And I carried on and, you know, five, six years later, I'm doing way better than I was then. And the people who tried to cancel me are like crowdfunding their rent. And I'm just like, perhaps if you minded your own business rather than minding mine, you would be doing better, right? And be having more cultural influence rather than just tearing down. You need to build, not just tear down. That was me being petty. That was not very nice. But (laughs) I also have to tell you that a number of people who were involved in trying to swamp me and trash me reached out to me years later and apologized. Hmm. And the painful thing about that is that happened behind the scenes. So publicly, they write medium posts and publicly they write Facebook books trashing me, you know, Facebook posts trashing me and behind the scenes, hire a mediator and make repair with me. And I appreciate that because the amount of internal work that you have to do to admit that you've done that and then reach out to the person and make repair, that is incredible spiritual work. And I will respect that, right? But nobody publicly knows. So thousands of people saw Mm -hmm. me being trashed Mm -hmm. And me and the other person made repair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a hit there. It's not fair, but that's, it is what it is. But I'm just saying all that to like, don't lie down and give up. Mm-hmm. And I held out hope when this was happening, because one of the people involved in doing this to me was someone I loved dearly. And I felt like, you know what, they are young. They are dysregulated. They are in a really challenging situation. And this isn't actually about me at all. This is there in enormous pain. And eventually they're going to realize it. And I'm not going to go and like brutalize them because I had receipts, right? I could have trashed them. I could have ruined their career. And I looked at this and I was like, this is a young, talented person who is going to make incredible contributions to our community and our work together, who's making a giant mistake right now. And I'm not going to kneecap her. And I sort of took the hit for the the greater cause, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really take the hit because I didn't stop. So I allowed what was happening, but didn't allow it to stop me. And I held on to their humanity. I felt like I knew eventually they would know they were wrong and they didn't need to apologize to me, but I knew that they would know. And sure enough, on January 1st, a couple of years ago, I got an email from them Hmm. and they hired a mediator and we had several conversations Hmm. and, you know, it was enormously healing. Hmm. And I just, I guess I want to say all of that to like, we are just people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a lot of people are doing this with grand nefarious intent. I think we are being hijacked by our conditioning, our subcultural norms, our cultural norms, our lack of resources, the incentive to do it. We get hijacked by all of those things. So I'm trying not to lose people's humanity in all of that. You're all fired up about your business until you have to go and market it, talk about it, promote it. All of that feels so heavy, hard, and overwhelming. 
We know that your business will flourish when you become comfortable promoting your work. And for that reason, we created Visible, a program that helps women amplify their voice in a world that tries to keep them quiet. Build an audience around your body of work and not just your body. So forget everything you've been taught about marketing. Visible is your fastest route to building an audience of raving fans that can turn into paying clients. Inside bonus, you can ignore trend alerts on Instagram. Join Visible today at joinvisible.co. That's very big of you, Kelly. Yeah. I, well, certainly, I wouldn't have said that four years ago. <laughs> I certainly am not there at all. Yeah. And I just want to say something personal here. The first time I was effectively canceled was sort of like pre-internet world, online world in my legal career. Mm -hmm. And it's a big reason why I've mostly walked away from that work. And so when it happened to me in the online context mm. three and a half years ago, it was the most devastating. Yes. It's like indescribably devastating occurrence just because people I people kill themselves. This is real. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. They totally do. Like it was is survival level stuff. It was to the point where like I left an entire life's work, body yes. of work, to go into something that I thought would be protective from this, only, of course, to realize that once you reach a certain level of status or success or whatever, inevitable. that it's inevitable. And I think that in, in a totally different industry, in a totally different online versus offline world, and I do think the charge was very much led by women in both contexts. Mm -hmm. And I do think like as a subculture, there's some grappling that needs to happen with this. Like I think that the converse, because the impact that it's had on, like that it had on my first career was over <laughs> amplify the work I was doing, but it was like beyond devastating to multiple communities of people who are still reeling from the fact that I walked away. And I have not been able to forgive myself from that. There's a lot of processing that I'm doing, especially right now, like this many years later. But I do think like I sort of am gravitating towards this being the main issue for the rest of my life until this, that we've as a group come to terms with this because of the devastating impact it has and what it stops, the work that it stops in its tracks Yes. And and it's unforgivable to me. And I've not forgiven myself from walking away and not being strong enough to personally weather it to continue that work. Well, so I that's just why one of those yeah. things where people are like, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist is so harmful because it absolutely does exist. Oh, yeah. And, it does and exist. when we say that, we erase from view our culpability in it and what it's doing to our movements and our projects yeah. and yeah. our culture making, right? It's yeah. literal brain drain. Right. And yeah, we yeah, are doing the work of yeah. our opponents to ourselves. We've got to take mm -hmm. responsibility it's for that. It's way worse. It yeah. is way, like, as you said, sort of like, you know, early on, you had men's rights groups, like all of the opponent level work coming at me was easy for me to, right. to push back against. Like that's expected. expected. Like we have, yeah, we have systems for dealing with that. We don't take it personally. We know it's there. But like, if I'm in court against an oil company executive and they slam a door in my face, during a break, during a recess in the courtroom, I'm like, okay, whatever. It's, you know, like, I don't care. Like, of course, you're the kind of person that's going to slam the door in someone's face, whatever. But when I'm doing the work in community and I'm, you know, accused of doing harm that I very much know I'm not engaging in and I have no, like, words no, no, to rebut that harm. Yeah. There, there are not. No, there are, there's nothing. Just, because it's the, that's yeah. where the book wanting was so useful to me yeah. because yeah. it names something that I don't think is being named in the wider space, which is in fact, the sacrificing and the scapegoating 
will only come from the people closest to you. Mm -hmm. It can only come from the people closest to you, right? Like if you think about like movie tropes, you know, the leader in power will only ever be overthrown by their closest friend or cousin or sister or brother Mm -hmm. or whatever. It's always the people closest to you. So that book, mapping out that dynamic of realizing what is happening here is, A, in my theory, we're out of level and that we're violating subculture norm. And the people closest to you are going to be the people who feel it most acutely because they were in the same status as you. And now you have something that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And they don't even realize consciously what's going on. They just know that something is off here, that you're violating a norm and you need to be checked. Mm -hmm. But just that made me understand like why certain people in my life who I cherished or trusted were in fact the people to do this to me. And then it didn't feel like just understanding that dynamic didn't feel like that it was specific to me, but it was just part of the pattern that helped a bit. But what it does to your spirit and what it does to our collective projects, that really is, like you said, unforgivable. And I think that Joe Freeman and Gloria Steinem were right, which is we as a culture and a subculture have to change our norms. And it is only us as a collective that can change this. And the collective starts with a few people, brave people speaking up, creating analysis that the rest of us can learn from and start ingraining. And that is how culture change always happen, mm-hmm. right? So I think we're going to get to a point where this becomes, this pushback and this discussion becomes more normal. But even at the beginning of this conversation, you're like, it's so good to talk to someone who's unafraid to talk about these things. That is not my status. I am always afraid to talk about these things. I never know what's going to come my way because of mm-hmm. that. I am always concerned and deeply fearful of when someone hears me putting forward this kind of analysis about trashing, that they're going to assume that I am oppressive, or I hate brown people, or I hate women, or I, you know, and I'm excusing people who've done harm to marginalized groups. I'm never doing that, right? If something legitimately terrible is going on, I'm going to line up on the side of justice. But that's often what I'm not seeing happen, right? Yeah. I'm seeing power transfers attempted. I'm yeah. seeing and, and justice and is a process. Right. Justice it's is a process. a process. That's the part that is missing. Like, yeah. And it's so harmful as a human being to not have a process. So even in Adrienne Marie Brown's book, is it called We Will Not Cancel Us? I, there's a book that she wrote about cancellations. It's a really beautiful book. And she lays out some processes and she advances some of the critique that we are advancing. But yeah. still in that book, She never questions whether or not if an accusation has been made, whether or not it's true, right? And so there's a piece missing in our culture where as soon as an accusation Mm -hmm, is made, we assume it's true. But actually, the only time we assume it's true is if the person making the accusation has a more marginalized identity than the person being Mm -hmm. accused, Mm -hmm. right? And so we assume because we're trying to right a historical wrong there, right? But we never stop to ask. And that is maybe the one thing our legal system gets right is at least there's a process where we don't assume guilt and we investigate and we verify, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We need yeah. to do more of that. Yeah. And I will say in my own context, in my situation as a lawyer, there was a legal process that happened. Like this did get, there was an official complaint filed against me. There was an official process. I was immediately cleared through that process, but the actual harm was yeah. irrelevant to the process, right? So even though we had the systems in damage. place, yeah. the reputational damage and like just my own inability to function in that environment after that totally. sort of public 
event that it happened. I was just unwilling to do yeah, it. To I was not, I was unwilling no. to subject myself to that ever again. And so I think the legal system functions or like there are bodies that function to help any kind of official complaint of harm. It doesn't undo the yeah. accusation. It never undoes it. And I think that's just to me something like I would like us to evolve as a group of people such that we just take that pause we and pause. we consider what are the impacts and what are the real long-term, you know. One of the rules I make for myself and I share with other people is when there's a trashing going on, I'm often tagged into it and invited to participate. And before I participate in anything, and almost as a rule, I don't participate, but before I participate in anything, I have a standard for myself, which is, can I build a timeline of what happened? Can I build a timeline and look at that and decide for myself what is going on? Most of the time we don't, we can't build a timeline. As soon as someone says, so-and-so caused harm to this marginalized person, that's it, right? And so people are just repeating things. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like this joke that I heard one time, I think it was like a Pink Panther joke, but it's like someone comes up to the Pink Panther inspector and says like, does your dog bite? Or no, he says to someone like, does your dog bite? And the person's like, no, my dog doesn't bite. And then the dog bites him. And he's like, I thought you said the dog doesn't bite. He's like, that's not my dog. Like, we're not asking the right questions. (laughs) We're not even asking any questions. Or another sort of dog-related thing is like, if someone says, you know, so-and-so beats dogs, how do you defend yourself? Because as soon as you start saying, no, I don't beat dogs. I've never beaten a dog. I've never done... Now that you're repeating someone's charges and it goes further and further. And two Mm -hmm. years from now, no one remembers the details, but they remember so-and-so is a dog beater, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to pause and establish a timeline. If you don't have all the facts very close to firsthand, if you cannot build a timeline, you have no business participating in anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree. So Kelly, what do you tell your clients, like that second group of clients that are newer in their business and growth and they've got the idea and they want to do the thing and you know they have the, the fear of visibility and fear of all the things we're talking about. What is your advice to them? Okay, it's really practical and totally counterintuitive. But early in your career, it kind of doesn't matter because you're too small to be on anyone's radar. So you have a number of years where you're under the radar and you don't need to worry about it, right? So when you're in that position, you're just starting out, you don't have a lot of public profile. It's actually not something you need to worry about that much, in my opinion, because you're not out of level yet. You're not on anyone's radar. You're Mm -hmm. not going to be the target yet of pushback. It's coming, but it's not like you don't need to worry about it for the next three years. So just go build your body of work right? And we will deal with that piece when you start getting on that precipice. Mm-hmm. To the people who already have existing bodies of work and who are maybe getting little hits behind the scenes of things, because often the hits start coming and you can feel them before they go public. And you know it's coming. Like you don't know a big thing's coming. You don't know what exactly it's about, but you are already getting the pings behind the scenes that there's something. That's when we have to get strategic, mm-hmm. right? That's when we need to like look at all the things and almost do like a strengths or weaknesses and analysis, like where could it be coming from? Who are the bad actors? And what do you do to take care of yourself? And I'm not going to talk about that stuff publicly, because then that just tells people who are bad actors, how to avoid those, right. things. like, you know what I mean? Like how to yeah, circumvent yeah. that. Yeah. But like, there are things that we do at that moment in time. We know often, I have one client in mind in particular, we knew in particular, this one person was really trying They were trying to rally people. They were going around behind the scenes, trying to collect evidence. We knew that that was happening because other people would come and say like, this is happening. And because she had been sending out like attempts 
You know, she would send emails like that were provocations. Like there were, we knew it was coming. So we got strategic about how we can predict how this person's going to behave. What are her next moves? And then what are our defenses? And then the other thing is, I say what I said to you earlier, which is don't consent to it. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're going to come at you. Yes, this is absolutely mm -hmm. inevitable. There will eventually be a hit post on Instagram. Like that will absolutely happen. And how you get through it is, do you have some money in the bank? That that will help. Do you, are you going to keep going no matter what? Do you have something higher to hold on to that will get you through it? Do you have three people in your corner who love you? Like, is someone going to bring mm -hmm. you some lasagna on the days that you don't want to <laughs> eat? Like in all mm -hmm. seriousness, mm -hmm. that's the stuff mm -hmm. that gets you through it. The other thing that gets you through it is it runs out of steam if you don't feed it. It does run out of steam. It's not to say that it doesn't keep happening because even last year I got uninvited from a podcast because someone was on staff. This very big podcast invented invited me onto a podcast. Someone on their team then said, no, Kelly's a this, that, and the other thing. I'll quit if you have her on. Oh my gosh. So years later, it still happens, right? But all I'm trying to say is the initial big swell of it being constant doesn't last that long. Mm -hmm. You have to weather it. Mm -hmm. I also think of it as, and this is maybe an oversimplification, but like if you have work in the world that you want to do, like this sort of what you've all been talking about, that's sort of like the cost of getting the work out publicly. Oh gosh, that's the troll under the bridge you have to pay, as my friend right? Magnus just, says. It's like, like to walk over can't... the bridge, you got to pay the troll. Yeah, yeah, it's the troll under the bridge. That's a great way to to say it. And when you frame it like that, like, is that cost worth it to yeah. go get this work out there? Maybe it's not. God. And you can in decide. the moment. Let me tell you, in the moment, it is not. Right. right? When it's <laughs> when happening, it's happening to you, yeah. when it's happening to you, you want to die. Like I yeah. honestly had suicidal ideation. Mm. Right. Like because this is the most important thing in my world. These people were so important to me. And they're coming at me saying about me things that are literally not true. There's like in the moment, yeah. honestly, I wanted to die. So yeah. in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's worth it. But on the other side of it, five, six, seven years later, getting through it is worth it. Mm -hmm. My work is worth it. I personally am worth it. What's so interesting to me, I have floated some comments and messages that I've received to men, founders mm -hmm. that I'm in circles with. And first of all, they never get anything ever like this. Like the kinds of comments that we get just does not happen, does not register. People with similar size companies just do not get any, have never seen anything like this in their life. And I think like, and they kind of laugh. Like it's almost like some of the messages. There's one, there's one that we got recently that was like, it's like so crazy that it it's like, like two years ago, I would have been on the floor for two weeks. Yeah. But now it's like, okay, you know, it's it's almost like it's so far that it's like comical. And I showed excerpts to this group of guys and they just think it's like, how does any, like, this is nothing to do with you. Like, how does anyone even think to write this down? And I think like, this is just this extra cost of being successful as a woman that like, they just, it's egregious. Yeah. They deal with like trying to deal with growth hack issues and, you know, they're like dealing with business problems. And we're dealing with bizarre comments from people accusing us of like <laughs> the most ridiculous doing, things. Yeah, the most ridiculous things. And so I'm just one response is to just really not care, like mm -hmm. to not equate 
any of these comments with anything related to justice or anything related to your values, because like this is so it's almost like so far outside of my value system at this point that it's just it's non-relevant. Yeah. yeah. But, but that requires being really anchored in it. Like yeah. Really, really anchored yeah. in what your values are, what you're trying to do. Like you have to be really clear or you will fall. Right. Like that. Those are your roots mm -hmm. in the soil. That is yeah. so important. Yeah. What I think is happening, because it's always women and they make requests of us and they sort of plead to our womanhood, if you will. Yeah. You guys are mothers. You're busy women. You'll understand that I need you to do me this favor oh yes. and extend it for a year. Or, or yeah. And then if I you don't. all the time. And then if, if you. Yeah. If then, you don't, then I'm going to whatever, whatever. Or. And I think it's like the patriarchy being used against ourselves because they believe that as a woman, we're going to nurture and take care of them because they're women and they forget that we have a flipping business to run. And I can't just extend a year to for, pay and yeah. staff to pay. And, yeah. you know, people are taking care of their kids and it's not free. My friends like this software it is patriarchy. It is because there's an expectation yes. that we are supposed to supply our care yes. and our labor and our time mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. free to support mm -hmm. other people's right. agendas. Right. That is, that's just a foundational right. belief in our culture, even when it's unconscious, even when it's feminist women, like, yeah. that is still a real belief. And then I think there's another thing that happens too, is we still don't take women's money and business seriously. We think right. that when a woman is working, <laughs> it's pin money. And she can, she can forego it. And I've seen this recently that whenever there's like a massive social crisis, we pressure women's businesses yes. to stop marketing yes. Yes. on social media like, yes. in those moments yes. because it's yes. unseemly yeah. to market. And someone sent me a, a message about that. Like, how yeah. dare you market when such and such and yeah. such yeah. and such yeah. is going yeah. on? Yeah. Oh, we get stop. I can't stand your emails. And I was like, yeah, you know, please CC me. <laughs> when on the email you send to the CEO mm -hmm. of Coke mm -hmm. and Procter mm -hmm. and Gamble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, when they've stopped putting their commercials out, perhaps I will mm -hmm. also consider mm -hmm. it. And I'm not saying yeah. I want to be, you know, the, yeah, but yeah. I was just, I was in a pissy mood. But yeah. like, why are you holding me to a standard that you don't have their, hold other corporations yeah. to when I am radically less resourced? Yeah. And, you know, like I don't have capital underwriting me. I rely on cash flow to pay my people. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just, and what I think underlying that is women's money is pin money. Clearly they are being supported elsewhere. And they can forego this money. Mm -hmm. We're not yeah, taking women's livelihoods seriously. That is what drives me crazy with these comments. More than what they're actually requesting, it's like, do you think I can just give you free stuff all the time? Like they've forgotten that there's an actual there's business. actual cost. There are hard costs there's that we pay. Costs, like our developers, costs, yeah. you know, our videos, like expensive costs. And they're like, oh, but you guys have kids and my you know, whatever, the, all these excuses. And it's like, I can guarantee you that Teachable and Kajabi do not get those requests. A hundred percent, they do not get them. And that's what makes me so crazy. And I think that's what it is, is the reason I get so angry is like, they're not taking us seriously. They're not yeah. taking this business seriously. And they don't know the heartache and the sweat and the tears and the conversations that we've gone through. And the sacrifices you here. made, yes. right? Like the time you've foregone with your children. Yeah. And now you're supposed so to provide something can, for free to mm -hmm, someone else. Like this mm -hmm. took time away from my children. Yeah. It, yeah. I just, it, There's a great podcast episode with Roxane Gay and Tressie Cotton where they talk about they had a Luminary podcast. So they, and it costs between four and $8 a month to access Luminary and to access that podcast. 
And they were getting a whole bunch of pushback on Twitter from women who had the language mm. of anti-capitalism and anti-oppression mm -hmm. who were saying, you know, it's not right and it's totally classist for you to make us pay to access your podcast. And Dr. Tressie Cotton said, this is what happens when people have the language, but not the praxis, <laughs> right? So they're using the words, right, right. but what would have to happen for that podcast to be free would be that their entire staff of professionals who are producing that podcast to be volunteering their time and not be paid. And for Dr. Roxane Gay and Dr. Tressie Cotton to not be paid. So what you're asking for in order to access something for free in the name of anti-oppression is for a whole team of women professionals to not be paid for their expertise, time, and labor. You right. cannot tell me that that is justice. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're losing the language of justice to extract resources from people. Mm -hmm. And I think that line of like, this is what happens when people have the language, but not the praxis is mm -hmm. really appropriate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the double good. standard that women are held to, like we are supposed to be these absolute icons of virtue with no needs, like no human fallibility. And it's absolutely bananas. I once received an email from someone who I was promoting a series on power where I had done a bunch of YouTube videos with a bunch of people talking about really interesting perspectives on power. So I sent an email promoting this series that was free that you could go watch on YouTube. And I had also put the, the videos on Facebook and I was doing some of them live on Facebook and then they went to YouTube. And this person sent me an email. It was like, you know, I'm so disappointed in you, you know, as a feminist business coach and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't be using Facebook as a platform given, you know, how they've mm -hmm. influenced democracy negatively, et cetera, et cetera. And I was looking at this, I'm like, are you also going to tell me that I can't use like phone lines and cell phones? Because <laughs> I'm not denying that those things happen, right, right. but you're basically asking me to go live in a yurt off grid in order <laughs> to not be contaminated by, you know, the yeah. injustice that we all live in. And that is not a reasonable expectation to hold of me. And mm -hmm. so then I clicked through because I was curious. I wanted to go look at their platform. What are they doing? I am not kidding you, but 90 seconds earlier, they had uploaded a video to Facebook promoting something. <sighs> And I was like, are you joking me? Like the cognitive dissonance. How do you even live with yourself? But no, it wasn't no. that. It was that I was somehow out of level and needed to be checked. And here was a lever that mm -hmm. they could use around mm -hmm. the language of justice that would make me question myself. Mm -hmm. I used to travel oh. a lot and give public talks on climate justice. And without fail, in any sizable audience, the first few questions would be focused on the fact that I traveled from however far yep. away I traveled to go and give the talk. Like I just gave you a 90 minute talk about like changing every major institution in society to accommodate a warmer world. And like you're pulling out the fact that I got here in some sort of motorized vehicle as like the context of our conversation. And is it just that we as humans are so terrible at understanding complex systems that we have to like only focus on the tiny bit of information that we can see almost visually versus like just thinking holistically? Because if we think about any of the technologies that any of us use, the cars that we drive, the like Phones. the plumbing systems that we have in our home, like we can tease out just like a lot of problematic stuff going on in any of that, right? Like, you know, everything is risk. I say this all the time. There is like no flawless position risk. in a flawed just, system. Yes. Like everything, like with the laptops that we're using, with every single thing, like the metal that went into this microphone, yeah. like everything. 
And yet, you know, like rather than talking about systems, which I think is the work that people like us do, is how do we undo and change systems to affect change in meaningful ways? We are going to, as individuals, hone in on these like tiny little details about an individual person's behavior at the expense of like all of the other details we could choose to focus on. And I think that like that's the absurdity to me. It's like, like, do we not see what's going on here? Because this is actually that it's hard to see holistic. Like it's hard to think systemically. It is. Yeah. Right. And that's challenging. But I think there's other things going on there too, which is we want to look at leaders and see like a purity and something better than us. And if we can look at them and see something that we can pick at, it makes us feel efficacious to do that. Like, oh, we're acting Mm -hmm. on our principles to pick at that thing, right? So it feels like we're using our principles. It's kind of like, I keep coming to dogs, but I am obsessed with dogs. (laughs) But like, my dog is a Rottweiler. It is supposed to have a job. It's supposed to pull things. It's big. It needs to expend that energy. And if it doesn't have a job and it has all these skills and energy and talents and it doesn't have a job to point them at, then it will go to 18 inches of drywall off my wall. And I am the same way. Right. Like if I have this beautiful brain, I have all these skills and I don't have anywhere to point them, I start getting enormously destructive. Mm. And I think that is often what happens when people feel powerless, when they see big systems and they feel powerless, they point all of that brilliant analysis at the thing where they can make a little difference, meaning they Mm -hmm. hurt someone or they unmoor someone. It's not a big difference, but you still feel efficacious. You feel like you did something with your principles. I think that's going on. Mm. Then I think the leveling thing is going on. And it is hard to think systemically, but it's not useful. I I mean, and it's not to say that we're excusing any of those things, but it is to say that we have to work in the system that we're in, in order to change it. Like we have voice or we have exit. Those are the two choices. So the exit is go live off grid in the woods. It's a legit choice, but nothing in the wider world is going to change when you do that. And that's a real luxurious position to be able to do that, right? And some of us are like, okay, we're in it. It's a mess. And I'm going to have to sometimes get my hands dirty, but I'm going to try to do something about it. That's the voice, right? That's the voice choice. And when you choose the voice choice, you will sometimes have dirty hands, almost always. We will always be making flawed choices, always. We just have to make the best possible ones in the arena. And that's even why I love that quote, speaking of arenas, from Brene Brown, which is like, Mm -hmm. if you're not Mm -hmm. out there in the arena getting your ass kicked, I am not interested in your feedback. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. That's a Teddy Roosevelt. Is it? I love it. Yeah. 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 She's quoting Teddy Roosevelt there. Kelly's Canadian yeah. like me, so we don't oh, always all right. know those. I've always had oh, a like the U.S. Sorry. presidential angle <laughs> Yeah, I there. don't know presidential speeches, but I, yeah. Anyway, Kelly, thank you so much. This has been incredible. And I think it's a conversation we have between ourselves, you know, but it's like so much better to have it with someone outside of ourselves and with uh, such, you know, vast experience and expertise. So thank you. Jenny, do you want to do Joy and Hustle? Yes. Kelly, as always, at the end of our podcast, we ask our guests to share a joy and hustle. So something that's making you happy right now and a tool that can help our listeners hustle or improve their career or business. So, I mean, there's a lot of things making me happy right now. I am absolutely obsessed with my Rottweiler darling. She is like the light of my life, brings me so much joy. I just spent a week on vacation in a cabin with my children and we played absolute cutthroat games of Monopoly. And my older children had enough social analysis to know that this game was actually invented to be a critique of capitalism. And so we were like <laughs> looking at it through that lens. It was so fun. You know, just having that time away together. Where were you? 
Oh, we're in Canham Lake. It's in the Caribou of British Columbia. And it was just, I just, that made me so, so happy. So Mm. not working, being with my family, playing games, romping outside, roasting marshmallows made me very happy. So my dog, time with my family, those are the things that are making me happy. And what's the hustle? Just a tool or a book or something that's, that you recommend. Okay. There is a book that I just read about like something about not drowning. And I don't, I wish I had it handy right now, but it's a business book about not drowning. And he says that literally 58% of all work is a work about doing work. Like, where is this thing stored? How do I communicate Mm -hmm. this? And we, so we spend so much time doing that. And it's about pruning your system so that there's less work about work. So you can only do the high value things. That book has been just incredible. I read it about a month ago. Really useful. Is it not called Drowning? I think it's like how to stop drowning or something like that. Okay. I'll go look at my Kindle and I'll tell you what it is. So sorry, but it it has really been very useful for me. Very practical. Sounds good. That's good. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? They can find me at kellydeals.com and it's spelled D-I-E-L-S.com. And the most useful thing is to sign up for my Sunday love letter because it is a blazing epistle of righteousness. Absolutely. Thank you, Kelly. It's been so fun. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com.